you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. Robert McDougall explains their product of a digital twin of radiology operations and how it can make the entire radiology operation more streamlined, more efficient for the hospitals in this episode of AI Ready Healthcare. Welcome to the sixth season of AI Ready Healthcare. I am your host, Anirban. It's a rather cloudy day here in Darmstadt, Germany. Nonetheless, I'm really looking forward to an engaging conversation with today's guest, Robert McDowell. So Robert is the co-founder and current VP of product and customer success at Quantively. From the description, I can see they are building digital twins of radiology operations. So we will definitely know more about it as we talk with him. And we are definitely eager to hear his thoughts of AI in such a transformative field. Uh, but before all that, welcome to the podcast, Robert. Yes, thank you so much for having me. And uh, middle of the heat wave here in, in, in San Diego where I am, but it's early morning, so it's a good time. Looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. So I guess... Whenever we have the podcast, the tradition is to start with the becoming question. So your background, how you grew up, what's your tie to the current job that you are having? Sure, yeah. I grew up in, in Nova Scotia, actually, on eastern Canada. You can probably still hear it in my accent a little bit. <laughs> but uh, I had a long journey. I did graduate school at University of Toronto in Canada, and then decided to enter what was then sort of a, a burgeoning field of medical physics. And I did a residency at Henry Ford Hospital in, in Detroit for two years. Then I worked at a pediatric hospital in Chicago, Lurie Children's Hospital, and then made a trip back to the East Coast in, in Boston, where I was for eight years as the uh, director of the medical physics program. And uh, yeah, so I'm a diagnostic and nuclear medical physicist by training. But while at Boston Children's, I met my co-founder, Benoit Scherer, and Benoit is just a very, uh, he's somebody that you want to work with, a brilliant software engineer, at the time working as an MRI researcher in a lab at Boston Children's, and we saw a problem and, and couldn't believe it hadn't been solved, and the situation was what it was, and, and decided to to solve it, and that's where how Quantively came to be, and uh, yeah, we're all in now. So I guess just a sort of question about Quantively. So 
as you said, you you changed coast again, so from east to west now. And uh, I, I'm assuming Quantively is still a startup, or are you beyond the startup phase? We're a startup in the sense of you know the size of our team, but certainly we have you know customers on the east coast, west coast, Midwest right now, and we're we're out of what you would call stealth mode. So so we really built the product for for three years. It took us three years to really get it right in terms of the data harmonization problems that that maybe we'll get into. And now the product is in use in the wild, you know, solving solving real customer problems. And now we're we're building our vision towards, as you mentioned, the, the digital twin of radiology operations. I see. So I guess since you are past the three-year mark, so that congratulations to that. That's a big thing, I'm sure. You guys are very happy. But before we go into your particular product, can you tell us a little bit about the problem itself that you identified and why nobody else has seen the problem in a way that a medical physicist and an MRI engineer come software developer together saw it? And I think that's really the reason why we saw it. We were experiencing the problem. And it's really why we started Quantively. We were shocked by how little was known about how these scanners, the most expensive capital assets, typically of a radiology department, an MRI scanner, CT scanner, and no one had any idea how how they're really used. So, you know, we would ask basic questions. How many MRI exams start on time? How much time is wasted between images? How long do imaging protocols actually take? And we were discussing this with with the, the chair of radiology at the time at Boston Children's. And and we realized there was this complete lack of, of information to really describe how these $4 million, $3, 4000000 million machines were operating. And, you know, there are systems in place that have pieces of these, this information. So there's a scheduling system in radiology, the schedule of patients. There's the scanners themselves. A technologist typically, you know, takes um, a patient from what's called a modality work list sets up the patient protocol, scans the patient on the scanner. Those images are sent to PACS, interpreted by a radiologist. But really what's happening when the patient is being imaged, the whole patient journey is a complete, what we call operational black hole. And that's why we decided to to solve the problem. Um, And this problem really requires a lot of domain expertise and a lot of software (laughs) expertise to really take all this data harmonize it and store it in what we call the unified data layer. So anyway, that is the space as it is right now. It's not a good uh, it's not a good situation, um, but we're, we're looking to solve it. I see. So if I understand correctly, the problem is that you have software products for scheduling, for doing the scanning and each of the, let's say the islands and of course packs and stuff to store the images. But what you really don't have is a software product that is looking at the overall process and focusing on where things are not really optimized. Am I correct? Yeah, there's these silos of information, right? So, and the information exists. Actually, it's just not easily accessible or interpretable. So if you think about about DICOM and images, there's a whole trove of image metadata but it exists in these different formats. So, you know, there's Siemens Mosaic format, for example, but 
Phillips, GE, Canon all have different variations. There's private tags that describe some critical pieces of how the scanner operates. And really what we do is take all this information in both from DICOM and other data sources, such as the what's called the radiology information system, RIS, which uh, communicates via the HL7 protocol typically. And we take all that metadata and harmonize it across you know, all vendors and all implementations. And really what we built is a new ontology that starts with, with DICOM maybe, but builds on it and really creates an ontology that describes radiology operations. And so what do I mean by this ontology that describes radiology operations. If you think about, and it's, if, it's, if it's okay, I'll get into the technical weeds for, for a second. If you think about DICOM, DICOM does not have the concept of an acquisition or an examination. So DICOM has a series. And of course, you can. it's a one-to-many relationship. You can have multiple series for one acquisition. Similarly, DICOM has a study, which is not an exam. A study can be opened one day, reopened the next day. And if you're looking at how scanners perform, actually what you care about are the acquisitions and the exams, not the series and the study, not the post-processed images, et cetera. And so one critical piece of our ontology, along with many others, is the ability to describe these components. So we actually extract the concept of an acquisition, a primary acquisition, a gradient on for an MRI. And similarly, we have the concept of a volume. So DICOM is a slice-based format, but of course, you can have a multi-TE sequence. And so we're able to actually extract that information, which is really critical if you're understanding protocols and you know how to, how to understand protocols, et cetera, which are, are not captured in the native DICOM format. So zooming back out, that, that's really what the ontology that we built is, is to describe operations. And then when you have this ontology, you can then start to augment it and interpret it with, with AI in various ways. And, you know, we make an analogy sometimes to the airline industry. So if you think of airlines in, in the eighties, I mean, they had no idea how planes were, were performing. Like, I mean, you know, a plane took off and it landed and you knew what time and that was basically it. But now we have, um, you know, millions of sensors, probably thousands of sensors on an airplane that, you know, measure fuel efficiency, wind statistics, crew movements, how the what the best way to load passengers on off, cargo, even how to predict, you know, prices for tickets, so some demand forecasting, etc. And so this is something the airline industry has figured out to optimize performance, but we're, you know, radiology is still in the sort of 80s <laughs> of understanding how how they operate and and so we're looking to to build that technology for for, for radiology. I see. So the idea here is that we have a pipeline that we set up in radiology that in a way is similar to many other service industries, but then we really didn't come up with uh, any ways to measure and improve that pipeline, make it more efficient. And that's where you are coming along. And the biggest problem there, of course, is I think you already mentioned is the problem of actually harmonizing the data that lives in different silos. And once you have that, then of course, it's all about knowledge extraction. So before I go into the more, let's say, detailed questions about the entire setup, maybe can you give us an understanding of a, let's say, typical radiology department 
high volume radiology department who are not using your system, how much they are losing in terms of, I don't know, cost or the time, effort, et cetera, like that? Yeah, absolutely. So one example is, you know, if you think about how scheduling happens today of patients, typically hospitals schedule in these these bins, and these bins could be half-hour bins or 15 minutes, or and, and they're broken down really in very big buckets. So, for example, all MRI heads might be scheduled for 30 minutes or 45 minutes. But, of course, there are many factors that affect how long an exam is actually going to take. If you have, an, for example, an MRI breast exam with a patient that has a BMI of 33 versus 20, that exam is going to take a lot longer. Or if they're going on a 3T versus a 1.5T scanner, you know, the, the, all these things, there's, there's clinical, there's demographic, and there's technical factors that affect that. So today, hospitals can either look at, hey, here's what was scheduled, and you know, cross our fingers, and I hope that actually happened. Or they can maybe look at sort of some DICOM information and, and look at you know, volumes, et cetera. But it's really difficult to compare what was scheduled with what happened. And actually, that's what we do. And so, you know, scheduling information right now is scheduling is done by human schedulers that typically, you know, they do a great job, but they don't have medical training. And it's impossible for everybody to synthesize all of this information. So a hospital today that, that you know, doesn't use our platform or doesn't have access to this data in our ontology would really be setting a schedule with these big buckets and really hoping that the day kind of goes according to plan and there's no delays, et cetera. But really, if you if you can measure it and then you can have a closed loop and say, you know, actually we could be doing scheduling much different if all our MRI prostates are scheduled for 60 minutes, but they're all only taking 45, maybe we should only schedule a 45 minute slot or a slot for this demographic or the scanner. And if you do that, there's some really, really low hanging fruit where it becomes, with all the inefficiencies, it becomes pretty easy to add one more patient per day per scanner, for example. If you can add one more patient per day per scanner, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars in profit per scanner. Uh, so, you know, you're talking millions and you're talking, you know, 10 scanners or whatever to the hospital. And so that's kind of some really low hanging fruit that we've, that we've identified and that has really been uh, delivered a positive ROI to our, to our customers. Yeah, that, that sounds like a very interesting way of thinking about the problem and uh, innovation that you are bringing in. So I guess one of the, I guess the biggest difficulty for the first three years or so was actually harmonizing across these many different vendors, many different styles of doing things. So can you Give us some insights about that journey. What were the most challenging, most rewarding, surprising stuffs that that you faced during that first three years of journey? Yeah, and this is where it's really the the combination of skills that that made it possible. So Benoit, and I'm, I'm lucky to have him as a co-founder. He's our CEO, by the way. But Benoit is incredibly technical, technically proficient. He's the technical co-founder, and also we both know DICOM, and so. It was really digging into, for example, unwrapping the Siemens mosaic format, understanding all the private tags across all of the vendors. And it's where actually a lot of the information exists, especially around timing. 
And it's really creating these techniques to fill in the information where it maybe it's not where you first expect. And you can do, you know, so so we 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 are able through our combination of kind of understanding of the physics, the data, and of you know, software engineering principles recover all that data in a way that's I think extremely difficult to do and, and is often underappreciated. I mean, I say three years and it's it's no joke. But you know, I can think of an, an example of that is, you know, you might have a scan that has all timing information. Um, it's it's actually rare, but in and it's and it's precise and it's accurate, et cetera. But maybe you don't have that, but maybe you have, you know, the start or the finish, but you have all the technical factors. And so and then you have, so can you can you recover that timing information? Another thing that was so difficult is there is a concept in DICOM of original primary acquisitions, right? So that means this was acquired, you know, with a gradient on, for example, an MRI or for CT, X-ray on. And but this is not, you know, this is not really used properly. And you'll see uh, it's very typical the scanners will send all of their post-processed images and they'll come across as original primary. And so our what really took us a lot is to extract in a really reliable, robust way what is a real acquisition. And then that is what composes an exam. So it's a combination of recovering all this information, filling it in in some novel techniques when it's not available, and then identifying the extracting the concepts that are important for radiology operations from that and building the ontology. So it's really just a lot, a lot of technical problem solving that we've achieved. I mean, I guess here I sort of had a very typical academic way of thinking about it is that if there are so much information that needs to be forced and then inferred because it's not there, we scientists always think of, okay, let's write another paper validating that the things that we are extracting are blah, blah, blah accurate or within this confidence interval. Of course, industry, it's difficult, it's different, but have you gone through an equivalent sort of process, maybe publishing some of this information about the stuff that you are doing, how accurate it is, or it is completely in a private way? Yeah, and maybe I can, we actually are going to be publishing a paper, we're, we're working on it, and it's very in line with what you mentioned. So we do data validation on the data, you know, is what is in the ontology, what is really happening on the scanner. And we have done that in certain ways, but actually what we're doing now is publishing a paper that validates that. And and literally this is like manual measurements of, you know, um, like how long is the gradient on and does that match our ontology? And then also going in the forward direction of, okay, now I have all this information can I predict the timing and then validating that? So it's both, it's validating what we're doing now. And then even if we don't have all that information, can we make some predictions about how long something will take? And we, well, I mean, based on what we're doing, we uh, have a high degree of confidence that'll be successful, but that's exactly what you're talking about. So data validation is is incredibly important. We'll, we will publish on that. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's great to hear that you are putting together a paper because that's, that's something that always a peer review is, I guess, a good way of showing that what you are doing is kind of based on real numbers and stuff. I guess another question I had around it is in terms of the actually 
how uh, according to the medical device rules how your software is uh, considered so is it like a medical device or it's not uh, i mean because this is this is such a meta uh, software it's not really directly patient that is going there can you give us some insights there yeah so so right now it's not a medical device we don't practice medicine or make any modifications to patient you know data so the answer is no it is, it is not a medical device it's we're, we're describing kind of operations and, and scanner performance etc but as we get into the you know we'll, we'll describe the digital twin and one of our goals of that of the digital twin in the next you know five years or i would say even even shorter than that is to open up the platform um via our apis and sdks to third-party developers and what they do with that data will really be them but we're going to be we'll, we'll be up to them to decide but we're going to be building the kind of data layer um, that can be used but anyway coming back short answer no we're not an medical device i see okay so that definitely helps you i guess in in putting these sort of softwares into into testing and see what what are the real benefits are and make improvements there cool so i guess the other part of your uh, entire work is actually the analysis of the data right so once you harmonize the data you have a common framework there you then talk about the machine learning ai stuff and how ai can bring be- benefit there so can you sort of give us some i don't know ballpark estimates of what number of data points are we talking about across what different types of hospital stuff how are you acquiring the data how are you bringing the i don't know what type of machine learning methods you are building is it completely self supervised unsupervised stuff like that maybe i can start at the high level and then, and then go to the low and and you can let me know if if you want to dig deeper but so i mean everybody is doing ai for clinical decisions right i mean automatic you know either triage stroke lung cancer mams what have you so we're definitely not doing that and we are using ai for again radiology operations towards this this digital twin vision um so we have a strong focus on metadata but for us it's all about you know enriching the ontology um our ontology with descriptors from both the metadata and the pixel data so to add descriptors of radiology operations so we're obviously working in the radiology space so we do some of the you know i guess standard computer vision um ai tasks of identifying let's say organs contrast i mean you can you can think of but these are descriptors that describe and would be in our database to then query so you know you could query like how many exams have contrast and that information could be populated by you know the a machine a machine learning algorithm acting on the pixel data but we also just do we really make a distinguish a distinction between machine learning and deep learning and we do many things that are just you know machine learning on the metadata itself so that could be so i talked about the supervised aspect of computer vision there's also an unsupervised component when you look at the metadata and trying to passively learn really what is happening other with with respect to protocols or repeats of images you can do that with some classic machine learning techniques on the metadata and then lastly it's important to mention that we're we're also doing some federated learning right so this is updating the weights as opposed to taking the data 
taking the data in, we leave the data and, and update the weights. And that's a very powerful tool as well. So the bigger vision here is really building the digital twin, which is the this dynamically evolving model of the department with data simulations and really using AI as a tool and whatever tool is necessary to add the descriptors that are gonna be required for that digital twin. And so really it's about adding descriptors to the ontology, not developing clinical decision support tools or, or diagnostic tools, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. No, I mean, even though you are doing, let's say machine learning, radiology, you you have a very different approach than most of the typical startups, right? Which are like, okay, we do image analysis. So you are not really doing that. That's cool. So I guess machine learning on metadata is rather new even to me because I, of course, never worked on it. I never talked to anyone who work on this problem. So I guess, uh, and then of course you mentioned already thing that, okay, so deep learning might be cool for whatever, writing papers on images and stuff, but you essentially don't need deep learning for doing uh, metadata analysis, right? So can you, I guess, maybe give us some insights of, uh, uh, first of all, the, the data itself? So is it coming from private partnerships or is it coming from public repositories and what sort of like when you are talking about simple machine learning, is it really like learning it in a supervised way or unsupervised fashion? Is it some form of clustering? So what what sort of metadata characteristics is, is most most interesting for your uh, digital twin dreams, let's say? Yeah. And, and so you, you mentioned a word clustering. We can talk about that. In general, there's a whole trove of of really public data sets that are very are very valuable that allow us to, you know, so so we work on all data that's available to us essentially, and working on the metadata itself is yeah exactly what you said. So you have, you know, you have an exam or even within one image, you know. So we we think about it as an exam is the big bucket. There's acquisitions which are the smaller buckets, and then within acquisitions there's all these images. So in DICOM you have each slice, and each of those images has you know. Let's say a hundred. I mean, it's a it's a rough estimate. There, let's say a hundred metadata fields. And similarly, in our ontology, we might have even even more descriptors that are taken from the pixel data. So then, what do you do with this? You have this very you know high dimensional data, and it can and, you, and let's say you want to cluster exams, but it becomes a, 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 a an inter, very interesting technical problem. But then, how you implement that clustering, and that's where the domain knowledge really comes in in terms of is this a distinct exam or is this where there are images that were repeated and this is really the same exam and it's the deviation because something was repeated and that's really the combination of just some unsupervised techniques like certainly we do clustering but it really requires a very very high level of domain knowledge to really understand like even if you were to do like a, a tsne plot really what these clusters mean and if the algorithm is actually working or not. <laughs> and you have, you know, you're comparing exams that have different numbers of acquisitions, maybe different numbers of features. And so it becomes, it's a very, very interesting problem to work on. And, and you know, the engineers of ours that that really work on this data, it's sort of like a kid in a, a candy shop, right? Because you it's it's data that really hasn't been available before. And sure, it's available again in DICOM, but our ontology 
is the harmonized data in the ontology is what really kind of unlocks the power to do the machine learning because again it's been harmonized and the descriptors are the same across all all vendors and implementations so yeah it's really a combination of everything it's it's the computer vision techniques on on the pixel data to add descriptors it's unsupervised techniques like like clustering that you mentioned on the on the metadata it, it can even be just more basic analysis if you're looking at repeats sometimes you don't even need machine learning you can just apply some techniques that that identify repeats um, and then you get into the, some of the really sophisticated kind of bleeding edge techniques when we come to federated learning and really how can we update the weights across all of the all of the data maintaining data privacy but really enriching the ontology as a result of that and and that's it's really really exciting it's not just doing the plug and play computer vision things it's really solving some new problems which we're excited about yeah that's that's really amazing and i guess one of the things that you mentioned from like from early on of course is that how your background and your co-founders background help but Looking at your advisory board in the web page, you have a rather stellar advisory board. Now, some of our listeners, they have a sort of entrepreneurial spirits. They want to do something beyond academia, beyond getting their PhD or a degree, the academics they are currently on. And I guess having such a stellar advisory board is rather important to bring the domain knowledge of healthcare when they are talking about uh, medical AI, healthcare AI. So can you give them some advice of how to choose these people and how to contact the right set of people? Yeah, well, I mean, the short answer is fill your blind spots, right? I mean, everybody has blind spots in their expertise. I'm a medical physicist. I had some experience in an in industry, but Benoit is a, you know, he's a PhD in mathematics. He's been doing programming since he was 12. But this is a, obviously our entrepreneurial journey um, requires filling in some blind spots. And so you have to find people that are going to augment your current kind of knowledge and gaps. But actually, I mean, I would say that you should also lean into your strengths. So for Benoit and I, you know, we when we talk to customers, we know this field. We know radiology. We know all of the problems they're having because we experience them. And so we actually bring credibility. So I wouldn't shy away from being the credible voice in your company when you're talking to people because you actually know your company and your field better than better than anybody. But of course, we didn't spend 20 years in in you know sales or in 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 large kind of organizations. And so you need to find people who are going to fill in those blind spots, but in the right way, right? So, you know, radiology and healthcare are so different because they have these very long sales cycles, these budget cycles. So you don't want to just hire someone from like a consumer SaaS company that's going to just pull their hair out, realizing that the sales cycle is six to 12 months. And likewise, there's, we're not radiologists, we don't practice medicine. So having a, you know, a medical advisor was a bit of a no-brainer. You know, you want to, you want voice of the customer for for several different personas, and so really, it was as simple as that of finding who you can work with that will fill in your blind spots. And I'll say that I don't know how it happens in, in most companies, but we were lucky in the sense that our earliest angel investors, obviously, we're in Boston, which is a bit of a hub for. We started in Boston, so that was a 
a hub for these connections. But our earliest angel investors really made the connections. And, you know, if you're getting funding, your investors will usually also identify areas that you might need to cover for blind spots. And usually they're even willing to just suggest who those who those people might be. And now we're working with, yeah, an amazing um, group of investors. So, so we're lucky in that way. But I would also not be shy to ask because if you, the other thing is, you know, you have to sell people kind of on your vision for them to contribute and help you, right? And, and I think for us, uh, our advisors had already worked somewhat in the medical imaging field and they knew the problem we were solving. And we explained the vision and they immediately grasped it. <laughs> and so people want to do interesting things and they want to do cool, cool things and, and they want to talk to people that are, you know, energized, excited. So, don't shy away from being excited, sharing your vision, and I think people will want to work with you. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I guess like the, the name of the podcast is AI Ready Healthcare, but one one of the sort of recurrent theme that we see is that often those who achieve some success, they are the ones who are more of a problem first person and not AI first. So they have mm-hmm. a problem they are trying to solve. AI is part of that solution, maybe, but it's not the other way around. I guess you are exactly the same. And that basically means you have probably a lot of domain expert whom, as you explained, they also faced that problem. And if you say, okay, I have now a solution that involves AI, you of course have a much better credibility because you are describing their problem and not how awesome your new AI is. So definitely helps. I guess we are more or less coming towards the end of the podcast session. And we also traditionally ask, looking at the next five years, how things would be. But in your particular case, what you are doing has a potential of directly benefiting the high volume uh, hospitals, right? And so basically looking at uh, the next five years, what ideally would be the, the let's say, reach for quantively? And I guess, how is it, how do you expect this going to change the space itself? Yeah. So, you know, in five years, hopefully sooner than that, but quantitatively will be the digital twin of the hospital, uh, first focused on radiology operations. And I think this is going to be a new standard software platform like PACs or, or VNAs. And it really has the potential to completely transform radiology operations with simulations. So there are so many examples of applications that require the digital twin and this simulation capability. For example, if you're trying to plan your CapEx, um, you know, your capital and operational budgets, you want to understand what the anticipated impact of that will be. So you want to buy a new scanner. Okay, what should I buy? What should the hours of operation? Do I need to hire more staff? I want to do scheduling better. Well, the digital twin can be used to solve the scheduling problem via simulation. And everyone benefits from this, by the way. So it's not about, uh, it's not just about profitability. You know, we're a mission-driven company to really increase access to imaging. So if you have, something that's predictable and consistent. Everybody benefits. The hospital obviously benefits from, from revenue. Technologists benefit from consistency. If you have some, if consistency is by default more efficient <laughs> and patients benefit 
with reduced delays, you know, predictability in how much time they're going to be on the scanner, quality and safety improvements. So this digital twin is really going to revolutionize how radiology operations happens. And then, as I said before, our, our long-term vision is to open the platform to third parties that can build on top of the digital twin with our APIs and SDKs. And so there are many applications that perhaps we have not even thought of that uh, will be built on, on top of Quantively. And then along the way, I think we're delivering now just solutions to real problems that exist. I mentioned how we're working with our, our customers at the moment. So we're delivering value and solving problems along the way to our uh, realizing the digital twin vision. Yeah, that's really a wonderful future where we can have a potentially entire hospital having a digital twin and how we do in future, you can all simulate. And from there, you can project your numbers and how the operations, the stuffings, everything would be. I mean, I guess this is one short and like probably people can think of entire public health systems can be digitized in such a twin way so that we know which areas need uh, what sort of stuffings, what sort of uh, fundings and stuff. So yeah, that's really a wonderful exactly. vision. Um, it's I, I guess it's still a long way to go. It's a big battle to fight, but at the same time, it's a very exciting time. And I mean, if you can change at least the radiology departments and how it operates, that already creates a lot of like big success story for the rest of the uh, departments, which are not as digitally inclined as radiology to follow suit and get better at what they are doing. All right. So I on, on that note, I absolutely wish you all the success to such a wonderful transition that you are having. And it's it's really a wonderful time I had talking to you and learning about the actual impact that machine learning is bringing to the translation of such a technology from, from uh, uh, basically just being something that computer scientists play with to actually helping people's lives. Thank you so much for the time, Robert. I appreciate the time and I really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks so much.